I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. Gareth Southgate has been manager of the England men's football team for more than five years. In that time, he's taken England to a World Cup semi-final and a Euro final. That makes him the most successful England manager since Sir Alf Ramsey. Not only that, there is a real excitement across the country about this England team that we haven't seen for many years. And in November 2022, he'll take England to another World Cup, this time in Qatar. Expectations are high. I caught up with Gareth to ask him how he prepares for a major tournament. What has he learnt from past tournaments? How do you make sure that when the players take the field for that first match in Qatar, they're absolutely ready to go? As you'll hear, there are lessons for all of us in the way he goes about these tasks. Gareth, I think we first met at St George's Park pretty much the week you were being appointed England manager and there was a meeting of the Technical Advisory Board there. And since then, we've had a number of conversations through the Technical Advisory Board. Is that your recollection of of when we first met? Yes, definitely, Michael. Yes, it would be uh, the several sessions that we've had with that group. And then, of course, we've met independently. And uh, yeah, I found our conversations really valuable. You've prepared the England team now in, the, in your role as manager for three major tournaments or two that have gone and one that's just coming up. And I'd love to talk to you about how you and the FA think about preparing for a tournament and take people behind the scenes of understanding that set of processes. These events are huge productions. I was in Qatar for the draw and there were a number of FIFA workshops, for example. And when all the different heads of department take to the stage and give an overview of what's going to happen from commercial requirements to television requirements to medical running of the tournaments to coaching. It's incredible, really. The detail to run an event like a World Cup is phenomenal. And for example, we went and looked at base camps two years ago before the pandemic. So our preparations have been ongoing since then. Before the tournament, sometime you have to set up an ambition of what you want to try and achieve in the tournament. You've said publicly that, well, we've, we got to the semi-final in Russia. We got to a final last year in the Euros. So this time, the ambition has to be to go beyond that, implying that your ambition is to win that. How did you arrive at that conclusion? And what are the practical implications of that level of ambition? I think one of the problems when we started in terms of pressure on the team was that the stated objective didn't match the evidence of our results over a long period of time. So when we were going into Russia, we were a relatively new squad, but also the team hadn't won a knockout game in a major championship for 10 years, um, five tournaments. If we then start to talk about winning a tournament, how realistic is that? So we felt it was a good start point look let's let's try and win a knockout game first things first we then of course achieved the semi-final which was probably beyond where we thought the team were in terms of its evolution and now we're in in a position where well it's less about managing the expectation and 
the pressure on the team. The team have got to accept that having been to a semi-final and a final, the belief is there for everybody and for the team themselves that we can go one step further. Now, we're one of, I would say, probably seven or eight teams that can win the tournament. So I don't think any of us are sitting thinking we're absolute favourites here and we're a shoo-in. We've only got to turn up to win. But we have also got to not underplay what, what might be possible here because I think in the end we almost set the target of reaching the final of the Euros and you come away thinking I wonder if we'd talked a bit more about winning from the start right. whether we would have actually done it so I think limiting what you believe as a group is possible is a risk when you're setting those aims and it's probably good intentions that people do that to try and alleviate pressure from the team but now I think we've got to accept that additional pressure which frankly is always there with England anyway. And the the practical implications between now and the tournament with the players, now that ambition is public, what difference will that make to your preparations, if any? Or will you just carry on doing what you were going to do anyway? I remember, I think it was Greg Searle, one of the Olympic rowers, who told me a story once that his coach had talked to them about getting on the medal podium. And he kind of said... That's not what I wanted to hear. You know, I, I, get, being a bronze medalist wasn't going to get me out of right. bed at five in the morning and onto the water. And I think that's where our players would be. You know, they, right. don't, they don't want to hear about reaching a semi-final now or those things. We all know that it's possible in knockout football that, that anything can happen. But if the stated goal now is that we realistically think we're one of the teams that can win... It affects the language around the team every day, every session that you go into. And I, and I don't necessarily yes. think it changes. Yeah. We yeah. would always be trying to evolve and improve in every detail. But you can then refer back to are these world champion behaviours around every session that you take part in, whether that's on the pitch or, or in meetings or recovery or nutrition, everything that you do. That's fascinating. And I was going to go on and talk about the intelligence, the way you research what the challenge is. And you've just referred to that winning mentality. And one of the things we talked about working out what are the demands of the event. So what does it take to win a World Cup? Are there some obvious characteristics that stand out that mark the winners out from the other good teams in the tournament? Well, there have definitely been some key performance indicators in and out of possession. And unsurprisingly, we hit, you know, nine-tenths of those last summer, which was why we got to a final. Right. I I think what we also then have to be aware of is how might the game evolve? And, you know, there can be outliers to performance. So, for example, most winning teams would have been an average age of 27, 28. But when we went to Russia, we were the youngest team in the tournament and got to a semi-final. And France were one of the younger teams in the tournament as well. So you shouldn't be constrained just by what it, right. what's been needed to win in the past. And I think one of the great things for us is we've now got really good experience of playing seven matches in two tournaments and the physical demands that there, there have been on that. We wouldn't have known that. That would have been an unknown learning for us. Right. If we'd only played four or five matches uh, and it did make a big difference, certainly uh, in, in Russia, you know, but by the time we got to the third, fourth playoff, I mean, we, we were slightly disadvantaged in that it was only two days after our semi-final, but the physical demands are huge and you get yeah. the bigger matches as everybody's starting to fatigue. 
And that learning from experience, you, you've obviously gone into depth what happened, uh, you know, the, the experience of Russia and then the experience last summer with the Euros. What lessons have you personally drawn for your own leadership as a coach and manager of the team? Well, of course, until you've lived some of these things, it's very difficult to picture yourself in those situations and to, you know, there are so many experiences in your own life and experiences that you've been through as a team that you do draw on. But then there are other things that you've just got to respond to at the time. And leading your team through a major tournament and the the massive spotlight that that brings is quite unique, really. You, you know, to lead your country in anything yeah. is, is unique. Yeah. The football team, even the biggest Premier League match, might have a live audience of four or five million because it's on uh, satellite television. You know, our games last summer... 20 million plus as we right. as we're going through the knockout stages so it's fair to say that almost everybody in the country is tuning in and you're leading it so it's an enormous responsibility an enormous spotlight and so when when you've been through it a couple of times that gives you confidence that well I, I know how that felt I know we made progress through those tournaments and um the decisions that you had to make, the, the 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 unpopular calls that sometimes you have to make, you realise that's just part of it, and right. the and the reaction to it is perfectly normal, rather than being surprised by it or offended by it or anything else that that might cross your mind. And when people, for example, in my local pub, talk about the England team now, it's really generated a, a great deal of excitement in a way that wasn't there four or five years ago. They also talk about how against Croatia in Russia and against Italy in their final last year, England went 1-0 up and then didn't seem to be able to translate that into a victory. What's, what's the learning from that for the team and for you? Well, I think there are learnings from it. Um, but I also think the only reason that that conversation happens is because we didn't win the games. Yeah, that's true. And of course, we were ahead in lots of other matches and, and we did win them. So definitely the flow of a game changes when you go ahead so early in a match. You know, teams prepare a game on the training pitch for nil-nil and football's a very transitional game and low-scoring game. And inevitably when you're ahead, it changes the dynamic and equally for the opponent who's then chasing. So without doubt, you know, we, we recognise that we need to keep the ball better in those sorts of games. We felt that we could have defended uh, higher up the pitch in, in the last game in particular. But the games were different. The context of the games were different. The tactical problems were different. And I suppose the the, the flow of both games was, was slightly different. There were similarities, but I think the learnings from the two games were slightly different. Right, so, right. again, when we're working with the team and we're watching the games back you know, however many times we do in every f aspect of them, we get right to the reality of it. Right. Where, whereas with respect, everybody in the pub emotionally has a slightly different view of it. <laughs> that's true. And, um, and normally that's on the basis of one watching live with the emotion of the game anyway. And we have to, as coaches, view a game differently, break down the decisions, break down exactly what went on. Because in actual fact, last summer, the goal we conceded was the first clear chance that had been created. It was from a set play. So the narrative of what might have happened in that 20 minutes before Italy scored and what actually happened wasn't necessarily 
exactly as it played out. That's really interesting. And I think it's important that people understand that that level of detailed analysis that you've done of the learnings of past games. You now know the draw for, for the Qatar World Cup. Does that mean that you set somebody or a team looking at researching each of the three uh, opponents in the group that we'll face in, in November and December? Yes, I mean, we, we will do that as a coaching group anyway. And our analysis team will will work some additional detail on that. Probably the most pleasing thing in terms of preparation and being able to plan is that we know now w- what days we'll play. So there are there are some detail there on when we will need to travel and what that means to our training schedule and what that means to needing medical reports at the end of the final weekend to be able to yeah. finalise the squad. Although it's complex, we know what it looks like and we've got some clarity yeah. on that detail. And that raises the question of your relationship as England manager with the Premier League managers who are responsible day to day for the players that make your squad so good. How does that relationship work, particularly as you come towards a World Cup? Well, of course, it's complicated. And having been a club manager, I understand it because the club managers are not only dealing with myself, they're dealing with maybe 10 or 12 other national coaches. They all want their players. They all, you know, with the bigger clubs, they're all important players for their national teams. And of course, the clubs pay the players, they own the players. So we're borrowing them effectively. And then there's a risk that they go back broken if they're injured while they're on international duty. So totally understand the the club manager's position for a start. Then this year, we've got a tournament right in the middle of the season, which is potentially even more complicated because the programme before the World Cup is extremely intense. I think a higher risk of injuries in the program next year, next season than in previous years. So people might say, oh, normally tournaments are at the end of the year, England are tired and it's been a disadvantage. Well, that hasn't been the case in the last two tournaments. We've managed that properly and I think we've got good performances. Yes. This, this year is different. There's a condensed Premier League program with Champions League matches in the midweeks as well. And so we're then taking the players mid-season and then... They will start again on Boxing Day back with the clubs. So a, a much more tense situation on a player that might have a slight injury when he's away compared to a normal tournament where actually it's during the summer and there's normally seven or eight weeks before the clubs play a match. And if there's a minor injury that they go back with, that's not, that's not a drama. So, so I think it's, it's going to be more complicated. Is there any learning from the African Cup of Nations? I and mean, this year, Sadio Mane and Salah from Liverpool were in that competition right through to the final. And I remember Jurgen Klopp saying, well, in the end, he really wants them to do well because it's their chance to make history. No doubt uh, inside he was hoping and praying they'd come back fit. Because but, but, <laughs> that is a mid-season tournament that the players mm. take very seriously. Are, are you, will you be learning from that experience? Well, I suspect... There will be some things that we can look at from that. Of course, we're used to having international weeks during November, for example. So the players meeting in actual fact for us, although we had 28 days preparation for Russia, we're very used to having a shorter preparation because we had a lot of players in the Champions League yeah. ahead of our Euros. So we've, we only had the, the full group for about seven days before the Euros. Right. Um, I suspect for the clubs... 
that learning from the African nations will be quite interesting because although we're talking about the national team, if you're a club and you've got players at the World Cup, but then you've also got half the squad at home, that's a really challenging period. How are you going to keep those players physically yeah. and mentally on track as well for what could be a you know, five-week period? The squad has changed uh, somewhat over the, the years you've been the manager, obviously, uh, and you've brought in some fantastic talent. But you seem to have been able to create a squad identity, a culture in the group, that although there's changes in personnel, the culture is maintained and sustained. How have you done that? Is that a very important thing for you? And if so, how have you done it? Well, I think it's one of the most important things for any team, really. There's, of course, the technical ability of a team, but the character and the the culture, as you, you mentioned, I, I think are fundamental to high performance. How have we done that? Uh, I would say it's a, a consequence of small things we do every day. So uh, I, I don't think we could look at one moment or one decision in isolation and say that's that, that's been fundamental. For example, we have a culture now, but that culture is at risk every time you make a decision, every time a new player arrives, every time a player drops out, because the the reaction to those events that happen and the conversations that happen around any of those events, that's what sets the culture. So yeah. I've often heard people say, you know, culture's about the things people do when nobody's watching. And I think that's a good uh, way of explaining it because if we walk past that crisp packet that's lying on the floor, we accept that there's mess and we all live and walk through it. You know, I, I walk past railway stations and I'm appalled sometimes that those small things and that's because somebody's decided it's too far to go to put it in the bin and then everybody else has walked past and not done anything about it and then we end up with something that actually nobody in an environment nobody enjoys living in so so they're the things that i think our staff set we you know we have a big staffing group like most sports teams now you could we we feel it's important to have experts in every field but that means more people and so they've got to be the right types of character they've got to be team players not too many high ego I I don't say no high ego because you need people with ego to succeed but I think our staff set the culture because the players then come into the building and they will they will pick up on the vibe what's accepted and expected by everybody around them I noticed in the last international break um Luke Shaw, among others, talked about how glad he was to be back with your squad and enjoying being with that group of players. You seem to have got a sense of this is something that players look forward to, where, whereas sometimes you look further back, the internationals were seen as a bit of a distraction from club rivalries. But that sense of a positive attitude to the squad, there must be something they're doing as a group. I don't know if it's the leadership of Harry Kane and Jordan Henderson. I don't know how you communicate with the group as a whole. Are you in touch regularly with the more experienced players in the group, for example? Well, I think you're right. I think the senior players are always an important part of that. When we talked about culture, we've now got, I think in the November camp, we had seven club captains. Right. Um, That's amazing. And that that didn't include Kane, who captained us in the first match, or Sterling, who captained us in the second. (laughs) So... Normally, people are captains of their club because they have that broader view, that team uh, pers- uh, perspective. 
and they generally do things right every day. And um, we have a lot of players that do things right every day. And that means when the new ones come in, firstly, this is a group that make them feel at ease and they spend time with them and they help them settle off the field, which allows them then to perform on the field. But also they, they look around the gym or they look around the training pitch and these experienced players are doing the right things every day. And that's a, a, a very important aspect to the, the, the environment that's created. One of the things we've debated in the technical advisory board and that, you, that I know you've thought about is when you get to the tournament, you've got a squad of 23 or 27 players or however many it's going to be this time. Uh, but once the tournament gets going, some will be regularly being selected for the team and some will be on the fringes. They'll still be in the squad. They may be on the bench this time with the whole squad. We'll see how that goes. But how do you motivate the players who aren't getting a lot of game time? It's less about how you motivate them, more about how you manage them uh, right. and, and make sure that they feel valued and that they're, they're ready for when, when they're needed because it looks as though we're going to stay with five substitutes for the foreseeable future within football. So whatever the starting 11 is, if you've got extra time as well, that five can become six. So over half the team that finishes the game different to the 11 that started. And that's a new dynamic for us in football, which means that everybody is potentially involved until you put that last substitute on. So they've got to be ready. They've got to know their job. They've got to be mentally in the right space. And equally, those guys who the morning after the game haven't been on the pitch, I know that's a difficult space to be. And I was in Japan in 2002 as part of the squad and I didn't kick a ball. And I know that was a much harder mental challenge than 1996 when I played every minute of every game and 1998 when I was a first choice and played quite a lot of football, although got an injury during the tournament. And it's important that the behaviours that help the team are really praised and highlighted and you know those guys can make a huge difference to the success of the team because if they're a selfish group and they draw energy and they draw attention and they draw time, then um, then it's much harder for the whole group to succeed. On this continuing theme about the culture of the squad and the, and the attitude, one of the things that was very, very striking last summer, noticed across the whole country, not just by football fans, was how the squad had a strong collective identity. And when after the final, when they'd played brilliantly through the tournament but lost, the way they stood together was fantastic. And I, the, the phrase that came into my head at that time was, this is inclusive Englishness. This is, this is the modern, you could talk about Britain, but of course, this is only the England football team. But the idea that the team represented modern England and was inclusive, thoughtful, diverse, and stood together. You must have been proud of that. That's how I see them every day. So, of course, in my experience with them, it didn't feel exceptional right. what they were doing. But of course, I recognise that it can be viewed that way because people from the outside wouldn't know the spirit that they have. And um, we're a team that have boys who obviously, you know, most of our pathway now from under 15s up, we've got boys that can play for two or three different nations. But they value being English 
but they also are proud of the heritage of the country that maybe they were born or their parents were born. And so they have this pride in both. And the world is more transient now. And most families now wouldn't think too much of flying across the Atlantic and setting up home in America because mum or dad were going to work and, and the family move. It's, it's much more possible now. And I think will happen more and more. So I think we exhibit that diversity in our team, which represents modern England. And also we've got boys who were born in the Northeast, the Northwest, the Midlands, the South. They, a lot of them have been in our junior teams together. A lot of them have played at one club, but have also played with players at other clubs and then moved on. So there are lots of connections between them and an understanding of what it feels like across the whole country when England play. And I, and I think we draw from all of those experiences, really. And that raises a question about your relationship as a squad with the fans, with with the country, and not just the fans, actually. And some of that is about the media, but, it, but there's also something beyond that. You seem to have done incredibly well to convey this message about what you represent and how you're playing the football without there being individual players who put up messages that conflict with that. Jack Grealish has almost a million followers on Twitter. Harry Kane has 3.5 million. No doubt all the others have similar numbers. Uh, Any time they could tweet something, if they wanted to, that would cut across that message. And how have you got that sense of discipline and unity around the messaging? That that seems to be very strong. Mm. Well, it's a very good question because we don't control it. We obviously are able to control our own social media outlets and I think the public have enjoyed seeing how much the team enjoy themselves you know they've seen the reality of what's behind the scenes rather than perhaps a perception that they don't enjoy it um, so that's helped us make a connection I think especially with the younger fans you know I think they are more drawn to social media they're a generation of fans that we needed to work harder to connect with. Uh, Of course, winning helps, Michael, with all of these things. That's true. And, you know, when you're saying about the players enjoying coming, that's also part of that. You know, when you're winning, when you're in a team that feels like it can win, that does make a difference. Yeah, it's a virtuous circle, isn't it? If you get the right team in the right frame of mind, they're more likely to win. And if they win, they're more likely to be in the right frame of mind. Yeah. A hundred percent. But to go back to the social media posts, Really, you're relying on the players and the group of people that support them. I think the players recognise they've got respect for each other. And I think that's the key within the question you asked. If they respect each other, I think they're less likely to post something that might be detrimental to the group and to the team. They wouldn't want to be the ones that let the rest down. Of course, we know we live in a world where 140 characters, you could lose your job. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, a, it's a very fine line. But to this point, I think the, the players have handled that really well. And it, it sounds as though you're not making rules about that because it would be almost impossible anyway. But what's maintaining the cohesion around the messaging is that sense of identity and belonging in the group. We don't really have any rules, no, Michael. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. We would be hot on timekeeping. Yeah. But, you know, we don't find people for timekeeping because we don't pay their wages. So there's no point me taking their money off them. Um, And frankly, it probably isn't going to change their lives if I do. So, again, if people were late 
for certain things, then we would, you know, we might speak to them individually or we might make a broader statement if it was a more important meeting or, or we might leave them out if it became a problem. But we don't, uh, you know, people wanted us to have a code of conduct. They wanted us to have a list of rules. But in the end, you actually, you can tie yourself up in knots with those things because most of the issues you face are probably things that aren't on the list. So you've, yeah. you've got to come yeah. up with a way of dealing with them. So we, as much as possible, we use common sense. We use the, the team ethic, the responsibility to the team. And I think the players kind of get it. What we do talk about is this lineage we have of former England players, future England players, and this being the moment for this group and how do they affect that. And I think we've done some work with a chap called Owen Eastwood who who you know has worked with yeah. very good on, on team identity and um he wrote a nice book called Belonging, which I think is what you're talking about here, the, 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 that sense of belonging to the squad. So you don't need the rules or the rules wouldn't work, but the sense of belonging and not letting the others down makes a big difference. Yeah, I, I often talk about somebody joining a school for the first day or joining a business. You know, One of the first things you do is you look around at how everybody behaves and interacts to, to find out how it works around here. And yeah. That's the same with us, you know, a new, a new player comes in, the first thing they're doing is looking for clues, normally from the hierarchy of the group, of how, how do things work. And I, I suppose that's how communities and groups have operated for, for centuries. Fascinating. And one more very practical, in a way, prosaic thing. Can I talk about data analytics? I've seen in Team Sky, for example, the way they review the power output of every cyclist at the end of a day on the Tour de France. Um, I talked to people at Premier League um, football uh, clubs about their data analytics and you read about working out how often you get your fastest attacker attacking their slowest defender and all of that. Do you have a big, well, a significant data analytics team doing that kind of analysis for you after a match, before a match, about the opponents, about yourselves? Mm. Well, I, I think like most industries we're swimming if not drowning in data yeah. <laughs> so so the obvious thing is what's important for us and um i think everybody is constantly searching for what are the key key performance indicators what what's the key data for our team because what's key for our team is different for another team that might play slightly differently right. have, diff have different players and our sport is different because in a sport like cycling or those power events, normally the outcome is defined by those analytics. And um, ours is such a random yes. sport, low scoring. You can be ahead on basically all of, the, all of the metrics and lose. And so you have to be aware of the data, but also read it correctly and not not be sidetracked by it uh, or not be sidetracked by a defeat where actually you might have done the majority of the things right and uh, and of course for us it's not a league program over 38 games where those things can even out you can have one you know a bad five minutes and f two years work's gone out the window so so it's making sure that we get that balance right and that we use it as a guide and as a double check to what we've seen. But there's also the experience and 
instinct yeah. of our eye that, that I think in all industries is still important. I think there's a lot of evidence actually to back up that point. I've seen it in um, in, in regard to baseball and, and the selection of future players where they there was an argument about whether the data analytics told you which players to pick uh, or the, the, the experienced um, coaches who are out, looking, scouts out there looking for potential players. Uh, and at the end of all that, they discovered that it wasn't one or the other, it was the combination of the two that got the best outcome. Um, and Dave Brailsford has a nice phrase. He always says the data informs, but it doesn't decide. That's about mm. judgment of, uh, in this case, you and your team. Um, last summer, through the Euros finals, you were based at St. George's Park, which is a beautiful facility, uh, fantastically mm. developed. Uh, you had it all set up for the players so they'd feel at home, comfortable, uh, able to recover rapidly from one game. This time you're going to be in Qatar in your facilities. Will that be very different? Well, I think... Over the years, again, operationally, the FA have learned a lot about the setup of those base camps and what works for us might not work for other nations. The need for a certain amount of privacy, but freedom. So, you know, how do you get that balance? Because in actual fact, the potential for things to go wrong when the players leave the camp or go outside of the camp is, is high. And of course, we're tracked by the world's media every time we set foot outside the hotel. So, you know, from our perspective, we, we found a nice balance last summer of seclusion. But within that, actually, a lot of freedom for the players to just yeah. relax. And so there's the physical environment, but then there's the soft environment that, that we have, that, that we want people to be themselves, that they don't feel, although they're locked away, they feel it's a protection and it's managing to keep out a lot of the noise rather than it's inhibiting and right. they feel the need to escape. You know, I, th I think that's the balance we've got to find next winter. So, Gareth, one of the teams in our group could be Ukraine. It could be Wales, Scotland or Ukraine. Um, obviously, we're all watching what's happening in Ukraine with, with horror but also with admiration for the way their president and uh, and many of the people have, have stood up to that uh, terrible invasion. How do you think about that as a football manager? There are events that happen periodically that remind you that the, the world we're in, people talk about pressure and they talk about sacrifice and they talk about failure or success, but, you know, it, it, it is... Uh, light entertainment, really, for people, football, real life and the issues that countries, nations, people face is is far greater. I think what we can provide is some escape from, you know, the difficulties that people face. And, you know, everybody in whatever situation they find themselves in need something to take them away from that constant worry and difficulty and... Um, so that, I think that's where football sits in that chain, if you like. And maybe we can inspire people in, in other ways. You know, certainly the players have a voice that, that can guide young people in, in positive directions and to make better decisions. As, as a national manager, I do find myself having to comment on any manner of uh, global topics which uh, are, are way beyond what I thought I would be doing when I was a 17-year-old growing up at Crystal Palace, that's for certain. I remember in... Um... 
in Russia in the run up to the World Cup, there was that poisoning, Novichok poisoning in Salisbury mm. in, in the, the months before. And when you got to Russia, you talked about the Russian culture and Russian people. You didn't talk about the government or international relations at that level at all, but you just talked to the people about their history. Um, and that seemed to work well. When you go to Qatar, presumably you'll think about that too. Well, I think we'd all be aware that people generally across nations are very similar. We're culturally different or religiously different because of where we've been born and the environments we've grown up in. And the rest is a consequence of the governments that run us, which is more your world than mine, Michael. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were in Russia. We met the people. Our welcome was incredibly warm. I feel that's the case in every country that you visit. And we're fortunate in our worlds that we get to travel and we get that broader feel of what people inside a nation might be. Your team does represent a set of values that make people proud to be English quite often. And that, if you can inspire young people or, or indeed the population as a whole, that hopefully is a contribution to making the world a, a better place as well as winning football matches. Well, I think when we wear the national shirt, we do have a responsibility and we won't always get that right. And the players especially are young people, so they're going to make mistakes. And I don't think any of us are sitting suggesting that we've got the answer to everything or that we, yeah. you know, we're the, we're the ones to follow. But I think we recognise where we might be able to make a positive difference. If there are issues we feel strongly on that perhaps have affected us you know, directly as a team or as individuals within the team, then, um, then we feel it's important to try to take that opportunity. Thank you very much. It's been fascinating and I really appreciate it. No, I mean, it's, you know, I know we've talked about a lot of these areas and I'm always conscious that we've made progress with the team and every camp that we have, we, we review back and reflect on things we can be better at. So, uh, you know, what's working for us is, you know, it doesn't necessarily translate directly to other teams, doesn't necessarily translate directly to other leaders who have a different style. I know my style is different to somebody else's, doesn't mean there's a right or a wrong. I've seen so much evidence now of different types of leaders having success that, you know, I'm, I'm a much more open-minded to all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, I'm probably pleased we've got to this point because if I talk too much more, I'll give away things that I shouldn't be giving away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I don't want you to have to do that. Um, I'm sure everybody listening... Uh, wishes you and the the team well. Of course, there may be some people from other nationalities that will hear this who will still wish you well but may not want England to win the tournament. But this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for spending this time with me and thank you for everything you do for the England football team and for our country. No, I'm very, very grateful. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest Gareth Southgate. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team.